Hello and welcome to the weekly Bundaberg Now podcast. I'm Michael Gorry from Bundaberg Regional Council and this week we've got a packed program of local news, information and features. We'll hear soon from former local journalist Paul Cochran. He's produced a podcast series on the Childers Backpacker Hostel fire which occurred 20 years ago this month. We'll hear about native bees and what's happening at the Bundaberg Library. But first, here are the news headlines. Traffic lights will be installed at the intersection of Branyan Drive, Dittman Road and Avoca Road to improve safety. A council engineering assessment found traffic lights will be more effective and cheaper than a roundabout. Bundaberg Region residents may be eligible to strengthen their homes, with grants now open through the Household Resilience Program. Applicants must live in a house built before 1984 and pay one quarter of the cost to an approved contractor. Bundaberg Region Mayor Jack Dempsey is encouraging local people to buy local and stay local now that coronavirus travel restrictions have been eased in Queensland. Here's Wendy Simpson from Ace Hardware in Jinjin talking about why it's important to shop local. As a business, uh, it keeps Peter and I both employed. We make lots of friends. We meet new people. People come and go. We help the community. Um, They buy the stuff if they're unable to. We'll step up and help them with their small jobs, especially the older people. Joining me now is Bundaberg Region Mayor Jack Dempsey. Jack, how do you think the Bundaberg Region has fared during the COVID-19 restrictions? Well, it's great to be here with you, Michael, and uh, it's but it certainly has been really tough in some areas, especially hospitality and tourism. My heart goes out to uh, those operators, and I hope they've been able to bunker down and get through with help from all three levels of government, deferral of bank loans and that type of financial assistance. But some sectors certainly have been impacted more than others. And a few industries uh, have actually done well on the other side, including groceries, transport and technology. But overall, Michael, I'd say the Bundaberg region will come out of this better than any other regions because we have such a diverse economy and such a great connected community. Last week you launched a Buy Bundy Region social media campaign. What do you hope to achieve through that? We want to be more connected and we want people to support local businesses. A lot of people were forced to go online for shopping during the lockdown and we understand that. But as things slowly get back to normal, we need to encourage local people to support local businesses and shop locally. It's something we can all do to help with economic recovery. Buying in the Bundaberg region keeps money circulating in the local economy and it also supports local employment. We all benefit from this and by working together, we can obviously get out of the COVID rut that's been in our homes to protect us uh, from our health to now get back into supporting those local businesses. What else do you think can be done to help kickstart the local economy? Well, Michael, I'm really optimistic and positive about the future, as always, for the Bundaberg region. We have major developments underway, such as uh, Macadamia Australia and their processing facility and tourism outlet, which is on track for completion by the end of this year. On Sunday, the Premier announced the easing of restrictions for travel uh, within Queensland, and this certainly will help tourism operators to start operating again. We know Bundaberg's the best place to live, work and enjoy 
enjoy as, as a family in tourism. So I encourage everyone in the Bundaberg region to support our local tourism industry, go to a local holiday park, spend the weekend in Woodgate, Gingin, Childers or on our beautiful coastal areas, take a short holiday if you can and explore our beautiful Bundaberg region and make sure you tell your mates, come back to Bundaberg, support the locals and enjoy a piece of our paradise. Thank you, Mayor Dempsey. Positive as always. Next, we're joined by Paul Cochran, former local journalist who covered quite a significant moment in the region's history, uh, the Childers Backpacker Hostel Fire, which occurred 20 years ago this month. Over the coming podcast, we're going to hear snippets from Paul's uh, uh, adventures recording this podcast and how he felt recording these stories paid a fitting tribute um, to those that were lost in the fire and those um, who have survived. Well, thank you very much for having me and thank you also to the Bundaberg Regional Council for its ongoing support of this project. Uh, I, I think it's a really important story to tell. There's so many great people who played such a significant role in, I guess, the the full story of Childers, particularly um, your CEO, Steve Johnson, and your current Deputy Mayor, Bill Trevor, who, of course, those two men played such a key role at the time. Had, Bill was obviously the mayor of the then ISIS Shire Council, and Steve was the CEO at ISIS at the time. And, and I think it's a, it's a great thing that those two men uh, are still in um, elected positions and, and administration positions um, at the moment because the legacy of Childers 20 years on, to me, is still as strong as ever. Uh, I, I remember turning up that morning and and just the, the eeriness. It was a really cold and foggy morning, actually, but seeing backpackers just so shell-shocked and standing on the side of the street um, in white blankets and, and really trying to take in what had just happened. I, I do remember, I've got a very vivid memory of um, doing a, a radio interview across the road. There was a public telephone box. And remember, mobile phones weren't necessarily a, a big thing back then. And and uh, Keith O'Brien, who's one of the British survivors who's actually featured in this podcast, was sitting there and he had on a, an op shop suit and, and a tie that, he, that he'd been uh, given the night before. Obviously, they got out with no clothes. So uh, there was some interesting outfits getting around in the, in the early hours um, immediately after the fire and, and giving Keith even just the small change that I had in my pocket and, and encouraging these backpackers to call home, touch base their loved ones. And... and and I guess that strikes me so much is that the isolation, the the pure feeling of helplessness of walking out of that building and having nothing to your name, coming to a foreign country and feeling so alone. So I guess the way that the children's community wrapped its arms around uh, that those survivors gave them a collective hug and still continues to give them that collective hug 20 years on is such a tribute to the town and the leadership at the time. And that's a really strong memory, but... But also going through that building a couple of days later, I was working for Channel 7 at the time and my cameraman and I were taken through the building and, and to walk through the rubble and and I, I have these memories of seeing numbers spray painted on the walls and particularly under some of the, the bars that were on the windows. And I remember I did ask the question what it was and of course those numbers represented where bodies were found and just such a, a vivid, um, horrific memory to see and, and something that you really can't unsee. And 
uh, and a really graphic reminder of what those young men and women must have gone through to in their struggle to try and get out. Uh, it it is haunted's a strong word, but it certainly sat with me for twenty years. And I know a lot of the people I've spoken to in the podcast, you know, have very similar feelings. Uh, and, and there was a memorial a couple of nights after the after the fire. It's absolutely easily the saddest room I've ever been part of, and. And, you know, in a strange way, it felt like we all knew each of those 15 people who lost their lives in that in that building that night. And it felt like we all knew the, the 69 survivors as well. And it was just such overwhelming collective grief in that room. It's such a strong, vivid memory that, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll never really let go of it. Uh, it was a powerful occasion, um, very moving and, uh, you know, it's something I've spoken about a fair bit in, in moments when I've felt compelled to open up about Childers. That memorial service is certainly a moment that I come back to. Thanks, Paul. It's always interesting to hear uh, the local history come to life. And I love the passion you've uh, shown to really do justice to um, this tragic event and pay homage to those who have passed. Next, we're joined by Libraries team member Stephen Harris. He'll be taking us through some digital literacy skills and uh, information about libraries in COVID. Hello, I'm Stephen Harris, the Information Services Librarian at Bundaberg Regional Libraries. Today, I'd like to talk to you about digital literacy and COVID and how people might be affected by both of these issues. Firstly, let's look at digital literacy. What is it? Well, it's a person's ability to find, evaluate and compose clear information through the use of digital platforms. But what does that mean? Well, really, it's just how familiar you are with using digital technology. Stuff like computers, smartphones, sometimes they're not that smart, iPads or tablets. Essentially, a whole range of gadgets that we use to find information, use for entertainment, and keep in contact with our family and friends. People who are not familiar with technology can be excluded from a whole range of activities that others may benefit from. There's a whole bunch of reasons for this disparity, or digital divide as it's called. Anything from a lack of interest to fear of technology can inadvertently cause a disparity. And as the world becomes more digitally dependent, these individuals can very quickly get left behind. COVID-19 has been an example of how we can quickly become cut off without digital connections to the world. When the stores ran out of toilet paper, people went online and started buying their toilet paper there. If you didn't have that online connection, you were at the mercy of the supply chain. So with a lot of stores being forced to shut people started buying a lot more things online. Another aspect of the lockdown was the sudden rise in the use of video calling. There was a dramatic increase in the use of Zoom and Skype to video chat with family and friends. Now you've got to remember both Zoom and Skype are free. Without the know-how and desire to use these computer applications, you are paying for phone calls on your plan and that can add up over time. Other trends we are seeing is remote working and distance learning. 
online courses have become very popular, but if you don't have a computer at home, you can't join in. And this could place economic pressure on parents. Online interactions have seen fitness programs transition to the screen, as well as online concerts taking place with regularity. Anyone in the world can join in. At the library, we have online chess lessons, and over 60% of participants are from overseas. COVID has demonstrated that we need to be able to rapidly transition to a digital environment. And as we do so, it's critical to think of those who may take longer in that transition and what we can do to help that transition take place. Thanks, Stephen. Next, we have Rod and Rebecca talking about what's happening in Arts Bundaberg space. Hi, I'm Rod Ainsworth, Manager, Arts and Cultural Services at Bundaberg Regional Council. Today I'm joined by Rebecca McDuff, who's recently been appointed our new Gallery Director. Rebecca, congratulations on the appointment. Can you tell us a little bit about you, the work you were doing before, and a bit about your vision for the galleries? Thanks, Rod. I must say I'm really excited to take on this new role as Gallery Director for Bundaberg Regional Galleries. I've had a long association with the art scene in the Bundaberg region. My mum is actually a well-known regional artist and I think I've been attending gallery openings since before I could talk. I've been in the role of Public Programs Office for the Gallery since 2014 and some people may, may know me through that role. It's a role that I've absolutely loved. In the past five years, I've developed programs such as Wednesday Art Walk, The Craft Crowd, Artist Workshop Series, and I've been involved in curating exhibitions for children such as The Neighbourhood Tree and Artie Fadi's Portrait Gallery. I also do have my alter ego, Dottie Lottie, who provides art adventures for our littlest art lovers and I think is probably more well-known than me in the community now. Before I was at the gallery, I worked as a psychologist and managed community projects for the state and federal government, but I've always had a love for the arts and when I started doing arts projects back in 2010 and then finally got my job here in 2014, I felt like I'd come home. So as you can tell, I'm really passionate about the community and I want to see our gallery celebrate the richness of our arts history. We have an amazing array of talented artists with ties to our Bundaberg region and my vision is to embed these stories into our exhibition schedule. I also want to see us weave First Nations stories into our schedule and work more closely with our First Nations artists. And in the end, it's all about community. I want people to love the arts, to feel like the gallery is their space, to see the arts as part of the everyday and recognise what amazing richness it gives to everyone. So with the government's restrictions slowly lifting, we're obviously planning a relaunch soon. Can you tell us what we can expect? Absolutely. Like everyone, as you said, we've had to shut our doors through the last few months, but we have actually been really busy behind the scenes getting ready to open again. Um, we're planning to open on the 28th of August with an amazing array of exhibitions across our five gallery spaces. And these exhibitions celebrate that rich arts community that I spoke about before. Firstly, at Bundaberg Regional Art Gallery in Gallery 1 in the Vault, we have the exhibition titled Found. This is curated by well-known regional artist Adrian Williams, and this exhibition has a wonderful mix of local artists and significant Australian artists from further afield such as Joe Furlonger, Robert Brownhall, John Honeywell, the list goes on. The thing that binds them all together is that they work in their studio alongside a studio animal. Maybe a dog, may also be a cat, fish, budgie, whatever animal it is that provides them with the company because let's be honest being an artist can be quite isolating particularly in this in these recent last few months. What I love about this exhibition is that Adrian has woven so many stories into it and it is also complementing it with an art trail that will wind itself throughout our region. So that's Gallery 1 in the Vault Rod. Um, upstairs in Gallery 2 we've been working with the Department of Main Road so an exciting new collaboration for us to look at an exhibition about the history of our Burnett Traffic Bridge 
average, most of us probably drive over that once or twice a week, more if you live over on the north side of Bundaberg. But it's actually got this really interesting history. And Main Roads approached us a few years ago to actually develop an exhibition about that to celebrate because it does have a very significant anniversary happening this year. Um, and then it charts, I'm actually curating a new exhibition out there for the Children's Art Space called Art as an Act of Optimism. This is actually works that artists and the community have produced in isolation and who've, that have shared back with us at the gallery. And so this is going to be a wonderful community project and I think it just aligns so beautifully with everything that's happening in the other gallery spaces. We really wanted the gallery to open again with a bit of a bang and so we wanted to make sure that they were strong exhibitions and that they actually were ones that would resound with the community and I feel that that's what we've got on offer when we open on the 28th of August. Absolutely. Well, I know that we all can't wait for those doors to be open. We look forward to sharing more with you soon. Thanks, everyone. Till next time. Next, we have Zane Norris from Alexandra Park Zoo talking about their latest edition. Thanks for chatting with us today, Zane. The zoo recently had some exciting news about a new exhibit. What animal has come to the zoo? So we've got a native bees hive that was donated to Wide Bay Singless Bees. It was rescued instead of being cleared and knocked down and then brought here to us. And the species name is Ostroplebia australis. What does the beehive actually look like? So it's a section of a hollow log that's standing upright. And when you do get a chance to come into the zoo again, um, it'll be next to the turtle enclosure when you first walk in. And why did the zoo want to include native bees in its collection of animals? Because they're really important for the local environment, because their numbers are getting less and less as they start to clear in urbanisation, and they're really important pollinators for native trees and crops. You mentioned the species of the bee. These are stingless bees, aren't they? Yeah, so these guys, um, they're completely stingless. There's about 1,700 species of native bees, and there's 12 of these are stingless that live in large social colonies like this. But um, this species can defend itself by just um, giving you a nibble, but it can't sting like your European honeybee. And can you tell us a bit more about the bees? What colour and size are they? What do they look like? So these guys are only about four mils, and they're um, about the weight of a grain of sand. They're black with four cream markings. How many bees are actually inside the hive? So there should be about 5,000 bees in this particular hive and it makes about a kilo of honey per year. But the zoo's not going to harvest it because it, it, um, it would affect the bees. And we can't put a viewing panel in, but it will also affect the bees. But you can see them come and go from their entrance, which they seal up overnight. Wow. And when are they most active? So yeah, they're definitely most active during the day and they prefer the warmer time of the year, they're not so active when it's less than 20 degrees. Do the bees travel far to find pollen or nectar? Well, um, these, this species of bee can go about 500 metres so to forage for all their nectar. So that means all the um, plants in the gardens, in the zoo and out in the park, but also all the way to um, bus park in front of the civic centre can be pollinated and the art gallery gardens as well. So they're really important. What do you like most about these bees? Well, I like the fact that they're native and they're local. They're found all along the Queensland coast um, and they're completely harmless and they do such a, such a vital role, even though they're so small. When the zoo reopens, do you have any tips on what visitors can look for when visiting the exhibit? 
So um, when you can go back into the zoo, you won't be able to get right up and close, but you can see from a distance and you can definitely see them come and go from a very small entrance, but you'll definitely be able to see them. And as you walk yourself around the park and the zoo, have a look at the flowers and see just how important the native bees little roles are. What's something that people who are listening can do to help native bees in their backyard? So if you want to, you can plant some native flowering trees such as grevillea or calistamon. So these are not only really bright and colourful for your garden, but also really important for the native species. And if you happen to accidentally cut down a tree or knock it over or see something like that, you can contact Wide Bay Stingless Bees and they'll help you out. Thank you, Zane, for that interesting segment on native bees. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's program and that you join us again next week for more news and information from the Bundaberg region. Goodbye for now.